Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, 11-24-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time we have this evening. We thank you for those who have joined in on our study uh, this evening. We pray that as we look to your word that we will find uh, wisdom, enlightenment, as we uh, submit ourselves to you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Amen. we have our normal course of study is in Romans chapter 10. We will attempt to do, to look at chapter uh, 10.3 today. Um, although I know we do still have some finishing up to do in 10.2, which we'll, we will get to. Uh, but um, that is our, that's where we are. But we do have some time for some Q and A. We will we will uh, pause. I know Fred has a question on the table, so go right ahead, Fred. Good evening, everybody. Again, um, it's, it's it's a general question. I think it has it's pretty simple, but it has many layers. Uh, the question is talking about sin. Uh, we know that God paid for the sins of the entire world on the cross for believers who would accept the free gift. But I'm talking about sin in general. Uh, in man's state, uh, there's none that's righteous. No, not one. So we're talking about in man's state that they're unaccepted uh, by God, born in sin, uh, in Adam, is all sin. How is, how is sin regarded by God generally? Are there sins that are worse? Are there sins that are better? I, don't, I think I'm phrasing it correctly. Okay, so... Are there some sins that are worse than others? Uh, I don't know if we could say use better in the same sentence that we should use sin as. <laughs> but um, so no, no sin is good. Are there some sins that are worse than others? Perhaps um, there is a. So now that you mention that, what comes to mind is is uh, the Proverbs passage. Uh, six sins I hate, even seven. You know that passage? I'm looking yes, there's six sins, yet seven that I hate. Mm -hmm. And the ones that he hates most, you know, uh, murder. Uh, but the one is uh, that he hated most was the sin of uh, the tongue. I think that's what I remember. Yeah, there was, yeah, well, there were, yeah, sins of the tongue, you could say. So, I think it's Proverbs. There's a, there's a, Go ahead. There's another scripture that talks about the sin that leadeth to death. Okay, well, that's in First uh, John, so uh, we can look at that if you're, you're interested in it. So... Uh, Proverbs 6... I mean, it just came to mind when he asked that this is worse than the other. Yeah. That's the first scripture that came to mind. Well, that is something to consider. 
We should. And there are other, along those lines, there are sins that could God could administer death, and, and to Bill's point. And um, we can ask the children of Israel about that. I guess they would know something about it as well. <laughs> but I will, I'll start with the, the verse in Proverbs 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Uh, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So, um, I would say God is, all of those sins, or most of them, deal with arrogance and lying, a lying tongue, uh, scheming, uh, things that people devise in their hearts. A lot of those things are uh, not overt things. Um, they are things that are happening inside the person. and But God sees it just as clear as day. So, um, And then Bill mentioned there is a sin that is unto death, and that is First uh, John. First uh, John, I believe it's five, maybe? Yeah, somewhere in five. So it says, First uh, John 5... Um, yeah, 16. So, so if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should pray for that, about that. Now, here's a, all wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so there's some discussion on it right there. What would it mean, sin that leads to death? It means where God will discipline you with death. and Which is to say, he will remove you from this earth. You will die a physical death. Uh, a good example is that uh, of that is... Uh, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to uh, the, the, the apostles and, and, and really lied to the Holy Spirit, as Peter makes the point. Well, God uh, disciplined them with the discipline of death. So there is that. Now, here here's some more categories uh, to think about. There's 1 Corinthians chapter... Uh, 11, I believe. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So people showing up at the communion table uh, trying to eat up all the food, which is uh, terrible because it was a sacred thing. With the ceremony they were having, which was to commemorate the Lord, uh, the body representing the bread and the spiritual sacrificial spiritual death is the wine and uh, so it says in uh, 29 11 29 for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves well, what, what do we mean that is why many among you are weak 
and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So there are three categories right there of judgment that could befall, and these are believers, by the way. Weak is one category. It seems these are more severe as they go on. Sick is another category, and a number of you have fallen asleep, and that is a reference to physical death. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So in other words, we can avoid this type of judgment, which is sacrilegious, by uh, not you know, doing something that is offensive to God uh, in this manner. So uh, then he says, nevertheless, verse 32, when we are judged, so what, what happens uh, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. So even this, the judgment of death is a matter of discipline. It is not something where God is saying, I'm taking away your salvation, you've been so bad. No, it is about the Lord dealing with his people that he has purchased with his own blood. And he can deal with them. And here it says one of the discipline, disciplines that they could possibly receive is death. There it is. So, um, nevertheless, when we, this is verse 32 again, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So, uh, God deals with his people. We will not be condemned with the world you know in Christ there is no condemnation so that can't possibly be and Paul is also stating that here as well um, I would say yeah those are some and, and there may be more scriptures to consider I already mentioned the children of Israel and the many disciplines that they went through and um, so does God I, I going back to the original question what is the worst sin, if we were to say it? I would say it's just a matter of disobedience. Look at what Adam did, and that plunged the whole human race into sin. I, I don't know if there's any bigger sin than that, than Adam's original sin. That caused all the problem. Well, we knew God anticipated that it would cause this problem. Nevertheless, he allowed it to happen. And by one man's sin, uh, death entered the world. And, and as it says, death by sin. And in this way, death spread to everyone. This is Romans 5.12. Because all have sinned. So when Adam sinned, he sinned for everybody. That's part of what we would call the bad news. So it doesn't... When we think about sin in society, even... We have some uh, variations in how we deal with sins uh, in society. So every culture, every society has rules of conduct. Well, some may not have the same rules as others, but there are rules of conduct and there are different punishments or uh, judgments, you could say, for different sins. We have that and we're certainly not God in our standards, 
And God also has standards of conduct in this world that he will uh, bring judgment if he needs to, if he feels it's necessary. He will bring judgment with regard to certain sins, and as we have already seen here in Scripture. So is, are there some sins that are worse than others? Uh, the answer to sin, as we know, is the death of Christ. The death of Christ is propitious for uh, every sin that was ever committed on planet Earth or that ever will be committed on planet Earth. That doesn't mean that the consequences in time for sins, uh, which is back to what Galatians would say, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So when we think about it that way, there are consequences to sin. And this is a natural consequence. If... Um, uh, and you could say it if if you kill somebody on earth, um, if you commit murder, you can go to God and know that Christ paid for that sin, and you can have eternal life by believing in Him. No, there are, there's no you don't even have to confess that you were a murderer. He already knows. All you are doing is coming to Christ, understanding your true condition, and believing. And God is already taken care of that sin. There is, justice has been already met with regard to that sin. So, but now, the, the consequence on earth, you killed somebody, man's law may say that you be locked up for the rest of your life or that you give your life. It just depends on where you are and what the law is where you have committed the, the murder. So, as far as God is concerned, you can have eternal life if you believe. As far as he's concerned, justice is, he's already propitiated by the work of Christ on your behalf. As far as the society is concerned, uh, you may have to spend some time in jail or give your life. So, so there are consequences as what a man sows shall he also reap. But that is not uh, speaking from an eternal standpoint. But I'll pause because there may be other thoughts out there. Or Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I think that um, you, you did a fine job answering um, that question. Um, so what I'm gathering from what you said as far as the believer goes, uh, as I can testify, uh, who the Lord loves, he scourges alive with a whip every son who he receives. So there are penalties, uh, divine discipline for cer certain sins that whatever that, whatever, whenever you meet that uh, God, who's a good father, uh, will discipline that believer and it could discipline that he could get the sin unto death. Uh, and I think what you said on the, as far as the world is concerned and the way the Lord, he was judged for the sins of the entire world. But as you said, um, certain sins that interfere, I guess man, believer or unbeliever, interfere with God's plan, God might check that situation. And um, 
take the person or the people that are whatever out. So I think that's basically what you said. I, I know you said a lot more, but I, I think that there's a general perception that, you know, you, you accept a free gift and there's people that say, oh, you mean he can just go around and do anything he wants now and he's saved? So there's there's that camp, that religious side uh, that doesn't see the enormity of Adam's sin and um, they don't they don't properly understand what's going on about the good news and the bad news and what did Christ do on the cross? So that question always comes up, well, you know, he murdered somebody or he did this and you're going to tell me he saved? So this is around the question why I asked, I asked that question. Yeah, I appreciate the question. And um, I just would say one, there's a couple categories. When we mentioned Hebrews chapter 13, or, or no, it's Hebrews 12 where it refers to God, he disciplines every son he receives. That is so, but so there's a couple categories of discipline, you could say. And one is uh, for training, right? So we, all of us came from a position where we didn't have any knowledge of God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And, the experience in that, uh, and then when it comes to us being in Christ, let's, let's say we've been saved and now we're in Christ, well, our whole experience has to be re refreshed or reorg you know, renewed is one of the terms used in the Bible. Our minds have to be renewed because we are saturated with the experience of Adam. And so God has to train us, and he does so. And he even uses discipline in order to train us. So there is that type of discipline that everybody receives. But then there's also punitive discipline, where people are way out of line, and God has to discipline them to you know, protect uh, for the sake of, of, of his name. And these people are reflect, a reflection of Christ and so forth. And, and they have stepped so far out of line that God does have to step in and, and take, take action. And he does. So that's more on the punitive side. So there's a couple types of discipline. There's training and then there's punitive. So when we think of, and we were more talking about the punitive, not so much the training that every person receives from God. We all got to learn uh, the new way in Christ. Right, how how to renew our minds and so forth. I'll pause. Other thoughts out there? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Hmm. All right. So it sounds like um, it might be time for us to head to Romans if there are no more thoughts on this. So let's do that. So, so last week, um, if you still have your notes from last week, we looked at Romans 10.2. So Romans 10.2, we, we 
which says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So um, in, in that, we did not finish this last piece of part, part number three here in our notes, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So we'll just go through this quickly and we'll get down to where we uh, left off, but we'll just refresh our minds a little bit as to where we were. So their zeal is not based on knowledge. So zeal can be good when, when a person is saved by grace and is excited and motivated about learning and walking with the Spirit in truth, or the Spirit of truth, we should say, who is the God is God the Holy Spirit. So that is there's certainly nothing wrong with being zealous for God. I mean, we, we don't want to see zealous here as bad because of what Israel did with it, because they were not saved. So their zealous for God turns out to be what we would categorize as religious. So we say, we use the term religious to uh, speak about people who worship God. They want to worship God with not without regarding what God wants. So they haven't taken time to figure out what, what God wants, but they are very intent and devoted to giving God what they want to give him. As I said before, religion is essentially idolatry. You might as well make up a God. You can put like uh, straw and get a hat and some old clothes and put straw in them and put them out in a cornfield and give them some eyes and a nose. And you could say, that's God. Then you could say, well, here's all the things God can do and, and God wants. And you can decide what rules and how you should worship him and on and on. And then that becomes your God. And that's idolatry, obviously, is what we call it. In fact, God hates idolatry from the Old Testament to the New. It is not something that changes with dispensations. He hates idolatry everywhere you turn in the Bible. So, we don't want to... And the way, Well, let's just put it this way. The way to avoid idolatry is to listen to God, to hear what he has to say. Uh, this is why I say uh, people who are zealous without being saved by grace, which is God's way of saving people, would rather put imp the importance of salvation on their standards, not God's. They're saying what's important to me is, is uh, if I do good works, if I am a good person, at heart, yeah, I may fail, but God knows my heart. He knows I'm good. You know, people like, like that refuse to see what God said about them, which is their three things that are a result of Adam. There, there are probably more, but these are the three that are in Romans chapter 5. One is death, this death spread to all. Then there's Condem that that death is spiritual death with its resulting physical death. That's that's for everybody on planet Earth who's born in Adam. Then there's uh, 
condemnation. God's verdict about Adam is condemned. The whole human race is condemned. So even when we're born, we're born alive, yes, but we are also dead and condemned as far as God is concerned. And then three, we're, we're dead, condemned, and we have an old sin nature that is passed down from Adam. And this is a nature of rebellion where Adam fully knew what God wanted him to do. And he said, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that is what we call rebellion or sin. And that spirit of rebellion is passed down to every person in Adam. Now, this is the way it is. You might say, well, I don't like it that way. I, I wish it were another way. Okay, you could wish that. However, God has established that this is the way it is. This is how it works. You can't change it. <laughs> you, you might like to say, well, I have to stand on my own two feet, God. Uh, you know, forget about what happened to Adam. Just judge me based on who I am. Well, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Even if you do think that's better or more fair, that is not the way it works. So that's not the bad news. And, and the reality is that you're born dead with the old sin nature condemned by God already. God is not going to wait till you get to the end of your life and say, are you condemned? No, you are already condemned. The only option for you is to be saved. That's what you should be learning. It, it, this life is not a proving ground to see what your works are, whether good or bad. And then at the end, God will say, well, let me put the scale, let's see if the scales tip to good. If they tip to good, then yeah, your good outweighs the bad. You, you are a good person, in fact. So no, that's not how it works at all. You're already lost. You're already condemned. The only option for you is to be saved. That's it. You don't have another option. So, so, so zealousness is not a bad thing, getting back to the notes. It's not bad because uh, if you are on fire for God, and this is reflective of one of the seven churches, where I believe is toward the sixth or seventh one, where God says, you have lost your first love. And when you first come to Christ and you're saved and a lot of new things are, are exploding in your mind and you're, you're starting to see spiritual realities, you're praying, God is attending to you, and you start to realize, then yeah, you're on fire, but... He's saying to this church, hey, you have lost your first love. You need to get that back. Buy, buy back your, you know, the things that are necessary to get that fervor, that zealousness back. And some people have done that. You know, I will tell you, how you lose your first love is you can be stuck in the milk. right? Because you, if you only have learned the milk of the word. And some people haven't even learned the milk of the word. They they would even they don't go far enough with God to even give him a hearing. And so they they don't progress to the deeper things of God. They continue to circle the wagon around the milk of the word. And um, everything is related to the milk. Every scripture they read, they somehow figure it's the milk. Because uh, that's the highest value in the scriptures for them. 
So they don't see anything else beyond that, and they become bored in their Christianity when really God has meat for them. And all they have to do is have the humility to continue to look further into the Word and allow the Spirit to lead them. So, point B, what, what could Israel tell us about the spiritual life when they have resisted the Spirit and turned their backs on Christ? Right? I, my thought is nothing. We should not be looking to Israel for as a guide to how the church should function. Uh, unfortunately, Israel has not only hijacked the church, but they have captured the minds with the fatal flaw that they had, which is, if you're moral, if you keep the law, then God will respect that. When in fact, that is not the case. <laughs> That's emphatically not the case. That keeping the law for a dead person, for a person who's already condemned, for a person who has a sin nature, cannot do anything before God. Right? It, there is none good, there is none righteous, not even one. So Israel has passed that fatal flaw down to the Christian church. It got people believing that. And not only that, the Christian church is infatuated with the Old Testament as though uh, somehow uh, if by trying to keep the law better than Israel did, by being more obedient, than Israel ever could be, they're thinking that for some reason God will grant them salvation. Wrong. Absolutely wrong thinking. So may it never, as Paul would say, God forbid, may it never be. So what can they tell us? Nothing. And can our life is not about what happened in Israel anyway. We're in the church. This is a new age. What it, God what God has revealed to us was not revealed to Moses, Daniel, David, you name it, to anybody in the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed. It's something new that God wants us to learn and to herald. This is what God has called us to. So we can't take our marching orders from Israel. We cannot have Israel's modus operandi. It is not ours. So, point C, do not, take, do not take counsel about the spiritual life from those who reject grace or eternal security. Remember, they put, they put the cart before the horse. First things first is what is important. Right? you got to be saved before you are able to even do a good work. People are so intent on doing some works, they don't, they don't even think about what, what is a good work. And they don't even regard all the scriptures that tell us that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, not of yourselves. Right? It's a gift of God. It is not of, of anything you can do. They just totally ignore that in thinking that, well, God will respect my works. And maybe that other guy's over there he won't respect, but he will certainly respect mine. Wrong. And again, he will not respect your works. So, um, so don't listen to people who, if they reject grace, if they haven't come through the door of salvation, they don't have anything to tell you about the spiritual life. They can't pray for you. They can't uh, give you religious counsel or spiritual counsel and anything about God because they don't know about God. In fact, 
what do they know? It says that they, they don't, they, there's none good. None seek after God. They don't, whatever they're following, it is not God. And you just better be careful because they have, Satan has influence over people in this category. So says Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Just be familiar with that because you will know that Satan has influence over people uh, who are lost. And if they have not come through the door of salvation by grace, then perhaps they are lost. We don't know their heart, but certainly, like the Galatians, they need to be told directly uh, that they are out of line. They, are, they have drifted off course from grace in the way their conduct is. Point D, knowledge, right? So their zeal is not based on knowledge. Okay, so knowledge here is primarily the bad news and then the good news. Only then can we talk about growing in grace and knowledge, right? So if you don't know the bad news, you can't know the good news. Now, a lot of people skip the bad news part. And you know what? They just condense it down to a couple of phrases like, yeah, we're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Then they'll say, yeah, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you press them on, well, what, do you say? what does that mean? Uh, well, that means... Everybody sinned, and I heard people give the gospel this way. They'll say, yeah, everybody is bad because of what Adam did. So you, you're a sinner now because of what Adam did. So all of sin means at some point, and then they say, at some point in your life, and they'll throw up the Ten Commandments, you have either lied or steal, stolen. You have committed adultery. You have so I remember talking to people and here, here, and being in conversations with people who are giving the gospel, and a person would say, yeah, so so you, you lied. You did this, right? And the person was like, no, I didn't. No, I never lied. And the person, and the person said, well, you stolen. The person said, no, I never stole. I said, oh, no. So the person went all the way down the list of things, bad things. And the person was like, no, I never, I don't do those things. So it really doesn't matter what the person thinks. And that's the wrong direction to take the bad news. The bad news is not that everybody sins. The bad news is that we have a nature that sins. That is the nature we were born with. We're born dead. We're born with a nature that is sinful. person doesn't know that. What the person needs to know is not... You don't, you don't have to convince them that they sinned. You have to show them what the Bible says about all of us and Adam. We all are under sin. That's what it needs to be uh, taught. It's not that, oh, let me convince somebody that they committed a personal sin. That's not the point. The person said, well, I will tell God I'm sorry about that, and, and I will keep moving. God will respect that. It's not about that. God says, you're, you're lost. You're born condemned. I already made a judgment on you. Condemned. And that was even before we were born. So the fact that we're born into this, we cannot change it. Nope, nothing can reverse the verdict of God on your behalf unless Jesus Christ comes along and lives a life that is perfect and God imputes that life, his righteousness to you. That's the only thing that can reverse condemnation. And that comes on upon faith in Jesus Christ. So... 
knowledge here primarily is their zeal, even though they're excited about God, they disregard the testimony of God about their condition. And they think that they can overrule God's thinking based on their behavior. All wrong. So not, knowledge is primarily the bad news and then the good news. Of course, if they distort the bad news, they will not understand the good news. And think about it. Anybody who re refuses to trust and believe in the good news cannot believe. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. They trust and believe and do not believe the bad news. How, they cannot believe the good news because it will be distorted. So only then can we talk about growing in grace and knowledge. Point E, Nicodemus came to talk about uh, the kingdom of God, but Christ said, very truly, I tell you, no one can, be, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's John 3, 3. That's a tough conversation. Nicodemus is a religious leader in the community, in, in, in the whole of Israel. He's in the Sanhedrin. This is, he has a prestigious title. If anything, if somebody were looking on, Nicodemus should be counseling Christ. I mean, this is the way uh, a man of his stature is, you know, positioned to be able to counsel. I mean, he is, he is a leader, a teacher, and a lawmaker in Israel. So Nicodemus came to Christ to talk to him, but, and he says, we know you, you must be from God because no one can do the works you do unless God be with him. But Nicodemus must have wanted to talk about the kingdom of God because Christ came and said, no, listen, Nicodemus, let me tell you straight. He didn't say that. He said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus wanted to talk about the kingdom of God. Christ cut him off. And he says, no, this is what we got to talk about first. And then it, it was revealed that Christ did, uh, not, not Christ, but that Nicodemus did not have uh, spiritual things in mind at all. And, and Christ even chided him. I'm going to go to the, to the account in John 3. So John 3. So here, he, he, this is interesting because he says, um, Nicodemus says, well, well, Christ said, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How, so Nicodemus's response, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. <laughs> so Jesus answers, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water, of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Now notice, who's counseling who here? Christ, obviously, is Lord. But he's telling Nicodemus, you know, that this is a spiritual matter. And then this whole point about talking to wind, how you can't see it, but you, you can feel the effect of it, right? That you can know that wind is there. So it is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus says again in verse 9, how can this be? And this is what Christ says in verse 10. You are Israel's teacher. 
See, this is what I meant. If anything, Nicodemus should have been the one in the position of teaching. But no, he's a student here. And he's on first base. You know, he's not even at first base yet because he doesn't understand spiritual things. He doesn't even understand what salvation is. I would hope and imagine that Nicodemus walked out of this meeting with the correct understanding of salvation and Christ, uh, as we see, giving it to him here, began to teach him this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So these are things that Nicodemus had to get and understand. So that's first things first, as we said, don't put the cart before the horse. Nicodemus and religious people do this all the time. They want to make it, uh, make the impression that they are saved. They want people to view them as saved and knowledgeable about God and a teacher in all of this. And really, they need salvation themselves. Don't be fooled by religious people. Don't. Tr truly, make sure as best we can that we teach the gospel. Point F. Religious people want to model their works before unbelievers. And if you look at the Pharisees, they were very proud. They These long robes and... Whatever they did, they did before the people so everybody could see, oh, look at how good they were. Oh, they give, oh they're giving out money to the poor. Look at them. Oh, they're doing the, oh, they're so, so pious, oh, so close to God. Look at them just giving. Uh, everything they did, it was public, right, so that people could see it. And so it is today. Religious people want to flaunt their works before you. And... They want to let people know that they stand out from them because of what they do. Oh, they don't do this and they don't do that. Oh, they would never think of doing thus and so. Oh, we won't hang around people who do these things because we are above. We, we God respects us and we respect God. And all I can tell you is turn to Matthew 23 if you want to see Jesus gives all these woe to you, scribes, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is what Jesus saw on the inside. They were uh, very deceptive. On the outside, they appeared as one thing, but on the inside, they needed salvation, just like Nicodemus. What does he say? How can this be? I believe Nicodemus was saved based on what happens in Scripture after and how he is mentioned. But uh, the Pharisees in general hated Christ. In fact, they were the ones who came up and said, we got we to gotta kill him now. After Lazarus, he, they said, no, we knew we had to kill him before, but now we know that we're going to kill him. Let's put a contract out on him. So they want to model their works before unbelievers. The, the thought unbelievers get when they are around religious, religious people is that they must behave that way to be saved. Teach the knowledge of the gospel. And that's Colossians 4, 6 is the text to consider. Let me give you that. Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So, so full of grace, seasoned with salt. That means it's not bland. 
right? You, you, salt is the spice of life, right? In fact, it was even valued uh, in terms of money. So salt was very important. If people had that, then they knew uh, that was the flavor. So don't let your gospel, don't let the flavor uh, be taken out of the gospel. What, what is the flavor? It is grace. That's what full of grace is. It's seasoned with salt. What is the salt? That salvation is free. It's a gift. It's not of works. Uh, all of those things are the salt. And just like Christ says, you are the salt of the earth. What will happen if the salt loses its flavor? What will happen? It won't be any good. It won't be any value. So it is with a believer who's afraid to talk about grace, to talk of, to stand out, and where everybody is talking about how you have to do works and how it's important, how you got to repent of your sins, and all these different things they throw on you. But bottom line is, none of that is true. Because when it come, when you come to Christ, all you have to do is believe in Christ. That's it. God never asks you to repent of your sins. He doesn't ask you uh, to give up sins. He, it's Because if you did, then that would be salvation by works. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. Anything you can do, it is not about that. So uh, Colossians 4, 6 says it, right? Let your conversation, in other words, how you act toward unbelievers. How do you know? Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. An outsider here is an unbeliever, right? You should approach them with wisdom. How? What kind of wisdom? Uh, make the most of every opportunity. Now, this is a, a mindset that all of us should have. Is when we are around people, especially crowds of people, we want to walk wise. How do we do it? And if we have the opportunity, we can't have a sign on our backs about grace and salvation is free. Don't think we're kooks. So we have to be wise in the way we deal with people in conversations. And it depends on the generation we live in and how people receive information and what's weird for people and what's not and all those things have to be taken into consideration but here's the, the counsel be always let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone so this assumes that people may question you about what it is you believe and so what do you do you have the opportunity to answer, but here's how you must answer. Season with grace so that you may know how to answer everyone. The wisdom part allows you uh, to know how to answer everyone. So that's an important thought, right? Make sure, that's point F. Uh, it's not about modeling our works before unbelievers. It's not telling them how good we are and what we stand for as Christians and all this other stuff that people... And then you got Christians who are hijacked by thinking that you have to follow politically what other Christians believe and all this stuff. None of that. So point G, if you do not know the gospel enough to explain it, be zealous enough to learn it. This is an important point because a lot of people, um, you know, when it comes to the gospel, this would be the common refrain. Well, I'm just a babe, you know, I don't know much. Really, they know, the God. they've been around the gospel. They understand that they've been saved by grace, but they, they may have a fear 
of being outed. Being outed means that people will know that they stand for salvation by grace and that they are for the Lord. And people don't want people to know that. They want to blend in. They don't want people to know where they stand, where what what's important in their heart. And if somebody understands what, what's important to you, then they can attack you. That's why a lot of times uh, family can hurt the worst, right? Because they know you. Uh, somebody from the outside calls you a knucklehead and you say, who do you, who do you think you are? I don't, you don't know who you, who you think you are. But if somebody close to you calls you a dope or something, then they know how to hit you where it hurts because they know you more. Not that you are a dope or a knucklehead, but they know you. They know where you live and all of this. And what are your likes and dislikes? What's in your heart? And so uh, some people don't want people to know that they believe in Christ, that they're believers. And, you know, so this is where um, you want to take time to be skilled in understanding how to manage the gospel into a conversation. So, as I said, many people, they don't even know how uh, to explain the gospel, like where to start, and how, what's important, what are things that unbelievers need to know. Right? So, instead of, like I said, retreating from people, learn. Get some knowledge about the gospel. Listen, if you get some knowledge about the gospel, you way ahead of most people on earth because not many people hear the gospel straight and we're not saying tell the gospel to embarrass people or um, to call people out you're lost you need to be saved that's not the point at all be kind listen we all came from the same place they are so uh, be gentle when it comes to people they don't have to be roughshod over people be zealous Oh, I hear some background noise. Hang on. Stand by. Uh, just hear a little background noise. It's all right. We got it under control. So, so that's what's important, right? Don't be able to... And, and if you want to be zealous, take time to learn the gospel. I mean, we have taken a lot of time here. When the scriptures come up about the gospel... We're going to do our best to teach it. <laughs> so, so that's how we, we get it here. And you can, you can be sure that you will have what is important. Or you can ask, hey, what are the first things you need to do when it comes to giving the gospel? We've talked about it in Q&A quite often. So it is not a new subject for us. Point H, and this is the last point in our notes from last week. But in your hearts... And this is a scripture, First Corinthians, First uh, Peter, three fifteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Very similar to our Colossians four six passage. But your, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. See, so this is letting people know where you stand. This is who, uh, where you are in your heart. Right? That's to, to be honest. Not as a hypocrite like the Pharisees who didn't 
have Christ in their heart, but they wanted to behave like, like they did. Always be, be prepared. And here, this being prepared means it requires some learning, some work on your part as a believer to come to know what you did when you believed in Christ, to understand the process of believing in Christ and what it means and how someone's saved and why and all that. Right? To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right. So there it is. That cuts right to the chase. Now, you can't tell people what what they ought to do in terms of, you know, you, what they better do. But you can tell them why you have done it. Right? You're a witness stands up and tells their experience. Not necessarily, and I'm not talking about a testimony, you know, type experience. Or, you know, I was a drunkard and I was a, the greatest drug addict and I was the greatest uh, person, sinner in the world and... And, and and then I found Christ, and then I gave up all that stuff, and I don't do this anymore, and I don't do that. I'm not talking about that kind of testimony that you hear often. So what I'm saying is the hope that you have, and it should reflect on the fact that you did nothing. It is all grace. The salvation is free. It's the gift of God. No works are necessary. In fact, that's what grace is capitalizes on not our merit, but our demerit. But do this with gentleness and respect. So this is an important posture in the way we talk to people about this. We're confident because we, we're prepared. We're always ready, apt to teach, says Paul, ready to teach. If someone, if the opportunity presents itself, you're ready to take advantage of it. You ever walk away from somebody and realize, hey, you know, that person was asking me about the gospel and you know, I didn't even realize it. That, that was an opportunity right there. And I did not take the opportunity. That has happened to me. I, I don't know if it happened to you. I'm just using that as an example because of what my experience was. And I said, man, I wish I would have said this and I wish I would have said that. And this is what it means by making the most of every opportunity. And because when we're talking to people, we don't know when we will, not, we will have another opportunity to talk to them. You might never meet that person again. So we want to make the most of every opportunity. It's speak to them as far as their humility will allow you to speak. First Peter 3.15 deals with a lot of the way we handle ourselves in the world when it comes to this. So Israel did not. Like Paul says, I can testify about them. He knew where they were. They are zealous for God. They are on fire for God. In other words, their their feet are moving. It's like they're running in place, but they're not going anywhere. They're running, but never going anywhere. Um, as Larnell says, forever running, but losing the race. That's were it not for grace. So that's what we would be. We would be forever running, but never able to get anywhere. Their zeal is not based on knowledge, right? They don't know. And because of that, we're going to see what happens in the next verse. Although we won't have time to finish that, we'll be caught in the middle again, which is fine. But here, if you have notes um, for today, the 24th, we will look at Romans 10, 3. 
And this is the very next verse. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Many resent the fact that salvation is by grace and is free to everyone who believes. The reasons for this opposition may be the same from one to another, may not be the same from one to another. However, the result is the same. Quote, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That's John 3.36. Grace is not easily understood by someone working hard to be saved. God knows our hearts and can tell us exactly where we are rejecting his righteousness and depending on our own. So we want to take some time to look at, we'll get started with this verse. Um, so we'll take the first phrase, since they did not know the righteousness of God. So the first thought is their zeal is not based on knowledge, right? And this comes from the previous because it again speaks of what they don't know. Remember, they don't know the, uh, their zeal is not based on knowledge. So uh, they're ignorant. Their ignorance is around the righteousness of God. And this is important to note because what it says in the previous, it talks about it from this, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It didn't tell us what knowledge that they, they lacked. But here in 10.3, he gives more explanation about what it is that they lacked in terms of knowledge. So there's still not based on knowledge. So this ignorance, we need to consider a couple of points. One, ignorant of God's righteousness. That's what it is. They did not understand that God's righteousness is higher than our fallen human standards. You know why I say fallen? Because of Adam. Because of what we were born into, as, as we could summarize it by saying, the bad news. Uh, they, they did not understand that God's standard is higher than our fallen human standards. You know, notice I say fallen human standards. Guess what? We have standards. All of us on this call, we have standards. And these are personal standards. Right? So we used to always use the analogy of, let's say you have a house and you have rooms that you allow people to stay in from time to time. But you tell people they could stay in your house, but there's going to be rules that they cannot have pets or they cannot have uh, drugs, alcohol. You cannot sell drugs uh, from this house. You cannot, and, and the list could go on about things that you would not allow people to do in your house. And those are your personal standards. They may vary. Well, you may say, no smoking in, in my house. Another person will say, well, I allow smoking. It's okay with me if you want to smoke. Uh, if you want drugs, you want to take drugs, fine. That's okay. But people have different standards. We should know that, right? And those are personal standards. But guess what we do? We think that our standards are even, the, I call them fallen human standards. We think that our standards match God's standards. What's good to us must also be good for God. So 
what happens? What did Israel do? They underestimated God's standard and overestimated their human abilities. So they they assume that whatever their standard was, was the highest standard there is. And it's not. It's not. God's standard is higher. So when we talk about righteousness, we should always remember the word standard. So, Because that's what it is, right? God has standards. And if you don't meet God's standards, then, then God's justice will administer punishment. So a person's in your house, and you tell them that uh, no drugs or alcohol in, in the house. So then what happens? You find, you come home and you find drugs and alcohol at, in the house. And you say, well, what, what happened? I told you no drugs and alcohol. So there has to be some justice. Right? So then you say, well, you got to get out. And the person says, no, I'm not leaving. And so you say, well, I'm calling the police. So the police comes, puts the person out. Uh, this is not a real scenario. But the idea is that justice has to follow when the standard is violated. And if you just don't have justice, uh, you know, applied, then then that standard is not, what, what good is the standard, right? So if a person says, yeah, well, I'm sorry, you know, I won't do it again, um, and, and, and I'll never let it happen again. But you, and you say, okay, 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 uh, no problem. I'm gonna let you slide this time, but don't let it happen again. So what happened in that exchange? You just lowered your standard. Your standard was no drugs or alcohol. Then, when a person committed it, you said, mm, "Yeah, I know. You know, I, I see. He said he wouldn't do it again. He promised that he wouldn't. I'm gonna let it slide." You just lowered your standards. God can't do that. He can't. So suppose, um, you know, the person says, "Well, I don't care what you say. I'm gonna do what I want to do." Because it's okay to do that. And uh, so you, and if you accept that and don't bring justice, then you have also lowered your standards. So, so there's all kinds of ways. So in, when it comes to God, he will not lower his standards from, for any reason. No coercion, no manipulation by, on our parts will, will overcome God's standard. We can't bribe God. Well, God, I'll, if, if, if you let me keep the drugs and alcohol, I will do extra things for you, right? I'll put more money in the offering plate next time. Or any there are various things I might do to, to assuage your standard. God is literally saying nothing you do can cause me to relax my vigorous righteous standard nothing and and that is weak it's hard for humans to understand that because we don't we only judge according to our own personal standards so what they do is they underestimate god's standard and they try to fit it into some human construct and they overestimate uh, estimate their human abilities in other words whatever they're doing well it's you know, God must see it as good, and they're very happy about them maintaining some personal standard that they have. They patting themselves on the head and, and encouraging themselves about how good they are. All right, so that's one point. And then point number two, ignorance of God's righteousness also means this is, 
This all speaks of their ignorance of the bad news. Really, that's what it speaks of, their ignorance of the bad news. And we've read the scripture a lot, but let me tell you, we don't have to read it now because we've already, <coughs> we've already read it. Romans 3, 9, it says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. All of them. There are no exceptions to the rule. All of them are under sin. So, and when it comes to that, we, we, can't, we can't make exceptions for that. We have to look at this from the standpoint of what God says. I mean, we, we really have nowhere to go. We can't say, well, let me see. Let me think about this. Let me see if it makes... No, this is God's standard, not yours. You, there's no argument here. Either you, either you submit to it, you agree to this, that this is what God says, He and, and this is the standard that he has. It may not be yours, or you don't. There are no two ways about it. So if you read these Romans 3, 9 uh, through 12, and I, I stopped to read. I'm going to go to Romans here. Hopefully you bear with me because... People think, I already got this. I don't need to know any more about this. I think I got it. But really, the bad news is comprehensive. There's absolutely nothing we can do. What is God's opinion of us? Here is found. <laughs> Verse 9. What should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? When he says we, he's talking about we Jews. Not at all. Wow. Wow. For we already made the charge. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. There's nothing that we can do about that. There's no way we can change it. We can't free ourselves. We're totally helpless, hopeless to do anything about our condition. And what is, this is not what I think about you. This is what God says you are from his point of view, his standards. And let's just quickly read it. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. If you think that that's uh, austere, do you think that God is being too strict on you? And you don't understand it because of your nature. Remember we said we have within us the spirit of rebellion which is also called the sin nature. So God's opinion of you is in the following verses. Would you like to read it? Their throats are open graves. You know what open grave smells like? Well, there is an example in the Bible. Lazarus had been dead four days. When Christ came there, told them to roll away the stone. You know what they said? No, no, Lord. You don't want to do that because by now, four days, he will be stinking. You, you don't want to do that. Lord, roll away the stone, he said. Okay, if you, if you insist. Well, open grave is one of the worst smells you can imagine. I had the opportunity. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but I have smelled rotting human flesh. It is horrible. So I'm, I won't tell you the instance. We, we won't go there. But it 
all I can tell you is it's bad. And their throats. Now, who's... Jesus, Paul is describing what the human race is like. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is what God thinks of of mankind. Can you think there's something you can do in this condition to please God? You think there's some works that you could do in this condition to please? That's his opinion of you. There's absolutely nothing. He says, there's no good. There's no works you can do. Everything you've done has become worthless to me. It's not worthless to you. It's to God. It's worthless. They have together become worthless. That's hard. That is something you should never tell another human being, that they are worthless. That's hard to say. Why can you not say a person is worthless? I'm talking about us. This is God's opinion of lost man. But God found a way to reconcile them. The only way. But you should never say somebody is worthless because, remember, Christ died for that person. There is hope. Worthless means no hope whatsoever. But there's no hope for people here in this category because they can't do anything for themselves. Something has to be done for them. God does that. He's the one who makes it happen. Anyway, just know this is bad. So you must know you are lost before you can be saved. A lot of people go right to save. They're like, oh, saved? That's a good thing. I think I'm going to be saved. I'll be saved. I think, what do you need to be saved? Oh, just invite Christ into into my heart. Okay, Christ, I'm inviting you in right now. So therefore, I am saved. The minister told me I was saved. So therefore, I am saved. However, to be saved, you need to know you're lost. And we used to learn it from theme. He used to say, condemnation must precede salvation. Really, that's not exactly um, <laughs> the way it should go, but I like how it all kind of rhymed together. But really, because con- the, the reverse of condemnation is not salvation, and, and that's the reverse of condemnation is justification. So when God, because justification is a pronouncement of God that you are righteous. Condemnation is a pronouncement of God that you are condemned or judged unfavorably by God. Point B Point B, why did they not know the righteousness of God? Why? So this is what they're saying. They did not know the righteousness of God. They looked past the ceremonial, substitutional sacrifices which taught that God required a propitious substitute. Right? So if you would think, if they would have thought about it, and this is Hebrews 10, 1 through 7. What's our time? Yeah, we're not going to have time to finish. But that's okay. We'll continue next week that we do. But go to Hebrews, Hebrews 10. I mean, this was common in Israel's history, right? God didn't just say, okay, uh, Israel, you have sinned before me. You know, what I'm going to ask of you is that you do better next time. 
I need you to, to look at yourselves in the mirror and confess that you're a sinner and I want you to repent of those sins and I want you to do better. Nope. There had to be an animal sacrifice. Some, an animal had to die. Now, of course, if you were raised on a farm, you might not see this as the worst thing ever. But I was not raised on a farm. I don't want to see an animal die. Although I do eat meat, but listen, some things are best left unseen. So I'm just going to read. This is part of Israel's history and culture that they had to, there was a matter of sacrificing animals. And sacrificing animals says that for you to be forgiven, for God to be reconciled to you, there needs to be a substitutionary sacrifice. And this is a blood sacrifice. This is not you doing Hail Marys or something. This is literally a blood sacrifice on your behalf. And that's what Hebrews tells us. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, read uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you will find all of this to be the case. Stand by, I hear some background noise. And I'm going to have to put them on mute here. Let's do that. All right. So, yeah, so blood sacrifice. And we're not talking about the animal bleeds and then that's good enough. The blood talks about without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, that is a reference to the animal's death. It's not just, well, I made the animal bleed. The animal must die. So for God to be propitiated, and this is all taught in the sanctuary service. The animals had to die, literally. And that represents Christ to come. And here's a good depiction of what they should have seen. And many did. Some did see it, but most did not. It's Hebrews 10, 1, the law is a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So what we are seeing in the law where God commanded the ceremonial aspects of the law, what we are seeing is not the reality, but a shadow. It was like shadow worship, we could say. They, they, what was happening, they were killing an animal. God really was not satisfied with the killing of that animal. To only, he was only satisfied to the extent that the person believed that there will be a savior to come and do exactly what that animal did on in their stead. So the law was only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the sacrifice, the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And this refers to the Day of Atonement, or what they say today is Yom Kippur, because yearly they had this and what what it was was a cleansing of what the sanctuary otherwise verse 2 they would not have stopped being off would they not have stopped being offered in other words if the person could uh, offer a sacrifice that would indeed satisfy god well it wouldn't have to come back every year and do it again for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So this is why uh, when we think about uh, what the economy of the Jews had in terms of their uh, 
the culture of sacrificing animals. It was part of God teaching them how uh, propitiation worked, how uh, people could approach him. Right? You had to have a blood sacrifice, a life for a life. Obviously, Christ is the life that all of these animals represented. So let's keep reading. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Well, when it says you didn't de desire, God told them to do this. And we will see this in a minute. But this is not like they were doing something that God didn't want them to do. And he says he did not desire. In other words, he's saying that I'm not propitiated. I'm not satisfied with animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices are only shadow worship to tell you that something else is coming. The reality is coming. But not to depend on the animal sacrifice itself, but to look past that to what it meant so this is what we meant by Israel uh, was involved in the ritual without the reality. They didn't really have the in, in mind the one to come who would cleanse them of sin. Verse 6, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O my God. First, he said, sacrifice and off offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased by them. Though Now, here it is. When he says you weren't pleased, he says, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Yeah, they were. God's the one that gave the law. But God's not propitiated by animal sacrifices. But then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. So all of this is to say, and what we're the point that we're making here is, is that you the, the, these sacrifices that were given, right, that what we see the Jews, and we're talking about their failure, they did not understand the righteousness of God. And that's a problem. That propitious substitute should have told them that they were not worthy of God. And that's the next point. The fact that there was always, this is point C in our notes, the fact that there was always a substitutional sacrifice means that of themselves, they were not worthy. And we read Romans 6.23, it says, um, um, for the wages of sin is death, and the wages Adam's sin brings is death. And none of us are worthy We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is why none of us can stand before God on our own merit. We're going to have to quit. Um, I, I realize we still got quite, quite a bit more to do, but we will finish next week. Uh, hopefully we covered some important matters. Uh, hopefully these things uh, are things that are foundational to you. And if not, then I would expect that we take the time to review these things in detail. This is our heritage when it comes to salvation and to know how we were saved, why we were saved, 
the detail of the milk of the word so we understand how to answer everyone with gentleness and respect. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father, thank you for this time. And Father, as we approach an American holiday, uh, Thanksgiving, it's just not really on your calendar, Father, but we, we recognize it is a holiday that we can take time again to thank you for all that you have done for us, for choosing us from eternity past, for equipping us, uh, for our predestination to be conformed to the image of Christ, for our salvation, our justification, uh, the fact that you have provided assets in this life, the baptism of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, all of what you have called us to, Father. We are thankful. We're thankful for one another, uh, that we have come together and, uh, and, and we are here, Father, learning uh, about your word together uh, on the same page with you according to your eternal purpose. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus who sacrificed his life for us, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, all of our sins, so that we... Uh, without regard to sin, can come and depend on Christ for, for our soul salvation. Father, we thank you for this group, uh, all of those uh, who don't have uh, the things that we have in this life, uh, to be able to, to stop as we do often and say thank you, Father. Uh, who, not only did you do all of that for us, but you gave us life. We, we're grateful and we pray for, we, even though we, we don't uh, pray in this manner all the time, we should, but Father, we are expressing in our hearts thankfulness for, for you. I know Thanksgiving could be uh, twisted a lot of different ways, but we are saying, Father, that we are recognizing you in all of this and remembering why we're thankful. It's not just that we're overly thankful, but that we're just thinking about all the things you have done for us. Again, Father, as we close, we pray that you will watch between all of us and the church uh, and this church and believers in every country and every nation in this world we pray for them as well, that we will all come to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature and, and reach the fullness and stature of Christ. All this we ask for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.